Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We educate, we connect, we care. We're In Social Work. Hi from Buffalo and Happy New Year. Looking back, it was a terrific year for our adventure in podcasting. Thanks to all of our guests and interviewers for keeping us thinking, asking interesting questions, and informing our practice. Plus, it was fun. We are looking forward eagerly to 2018. I'm Peter Sabota. What happens when you study the experiences of leaders of leaders and organizations of organizations? If that sounds confusing, don't worry. Our guest, Dr. Jessica Greenewall, will sort through a 25-year history of coalition leaders' perceptions of their successes and their challenges. Dr. Greenewall will describe what she discovered, the implications of what she's learned for today's social change environment, and what constitutes effective leadership of change-focused alliances for combined action. Jessica Greenewall, PhD, LMSW, is the program director at the Arthur Project, a New York City-based nonprofit organization that serves at-risk middle school students through therapeutic, anti-oppressive mentoring. Dr. Greenewald was interviewed in October of 2017 by our own Dr. Kate Cost, associate professor here at the UB School of Social Work. Good morning. I am Dr. Kathleen Cost, faculty from the School of Social Work, and I'd like to introduce Dr. Jessica Greenewald, who is the program director at the Arthur Project in New York City. Welcome. Thank you. And I wondered if you could start us out with a little bit of uh, information about your research. Sure, I'd be happy to. The research that we are going to be talking about today is the research that I did for my dissertation on uh, coalitions and coalition building. The title of my dissertation was Predicting Success in Social Change Coalitions, Learning from 25 Years of Leader Experience. And the reason that that is the title is because my research was essentially a follow-up from research that was done by Terry Mizrahi and Beth Rosenthal in the late 80s and early 90s. So as a little bit of background, they brought together a group of social change coalition leaders at that time who were participating and leading coalitions in New York City and the local kind of New York, New Jersey area. And they brought together these coalition leaders because they wanted to learn more about coalitions and how they operated, their lifespan, their life course, and sort of the factors that predicted success essentially and also failure in coalitions and coalition building. And so they brought these leaders together through sort of a series of steps in their research, beginning with focus groups where they kind of created the items that they wanted to investigate further. And then from those focus groups developed an instrument where they went into in-depth interviews with 40 leaders in particular in the New York City area. So they interviewed these 40 leaders through in-depth interviews, open and closed questions, where they asked them about their perceptions regarding the successes and or failures of the particular coalitions that they led or were leading, I should say, at the time. 
So they got a lot of really interesting information and data out of their research. And for my research, I essentially wanted to follow up with the same group of participants from their study and find out how their perceptions had changed, if they had changed. And I also wanted to interview leaders of coalitions that were still intact from the original study. So now, you know, essentially almost 30 years later, just over half are still intact in some shape or form. And so I also wanted to interview those current leaders and find out how their perceptions compared to the perceptions of the original participants. I also, you know, have my own sort of spin and interest in the topic itself. And so I analyze things from a slightly different perspective and ask them slightly different questions as they did in the original study. But for the most part, I was asking a lot of the same questions because really I wanted to see if these perceptions had changed over time. What brought you to the study of coalitions? What was your interest that's a really interesting question and actually I think is almost an exercise in not necessarily coalitions, but collaboration in itself because as a master's student, I was elected to the board of directors for the National Association of Social Workers in California where I was going to school. And as part of my participation in the board, the other student director from California and myself wanted to create an opportunity for both the board members and other social workers and social work students in California to participate in what we were hoping would be sort of a social justice project. And we ended up partnering with the Dolores Huerta Foundation, which is located in Central California, and which is a outgrowth, if you, if you will, of the United Farm Workers. So with Cesar Chavez and Fred Ross, et cetera. So their work still continues to improve the betterment of farm workers and the people who live and work in the Central Valley of California. So our project was to partner with them, along with uh, Cal State University Bakersfield, to meet a need in the community and also give an opportunity for social work students to practice some of the skills that they were learning while they were in graduate school. And what we ended up doing was asking the Dolores Huerta Foundation what they and what the community needed. And they essentially said they would like some help facilitating a needs assessment for their community. So we brought in graduate students from 23 graduate schools of social work in California. We met in the Central Valley. We stayed with the families that live and work there. And we helped them conduct a needs assessment for their own community based on what they had expressed their desires were. And then they took that information and CSU Bakersfield published that. And they then took that report and took this publication and used it to drive their policy and advocacy work. And so at the end of the day, it was a really successful and enjoyable experience for everybody that participated in it. And it kind of drove my interest in learning more about why and how collaborations and essentially some coalitions work and operate. So when I was creating my, my master's capstone project, I wrote about this and I started to realize that a lot of the really rich research out there came from Terry Mizrahi and Beth Rosenthal. And I was citing them left and right as I was writing my paper. Fast forward, I moved to New York City and through my own network was introduced to Terry Mizrahi and we developed a professional and personal relationship and I expressed to her my interest in learning more and she essentially agreed to kind of hand over 
all of her data and the data that she and Beth Rosenthal had collected so that I could pursue my own interest in my own research. So it's sort of a long, a little bit long, but interesting story and kind of, as we'll talk a little bit more about my own professional network and now how that sort of got me to this point of my interest in coalitions. Sure. Could you describe what you see as differences between coalitions and collaborations? if you wouldn't mind, just to clarify the difference. Sure, and and I should say that I not use the term collaboration in my research. One of the challenges or opportunities has been to differentiate between these things and to operationalize some of these terms. And in fact, the way that Dr. Mizrahi and Ms. Rosenthal operationalized their terms is actually something that changed with me as I worked through my data and my research. So I should say that I didn't discuss collaboration. I think that most people would conceptualize collaborations as being more informal, more loose, more time limited than coalitions, less structured perhaps than coalitions, although that certainly isn't always the case. So I I view coalitions as potentially being more formal and more structured, but again, that's not necessarily always true. At the beginning of my research, I operationalized coalitions as organizations of organizations with an agreed upon purpose engaged in influencing an external change target. And that was really the definition that Ms. Rahi and Rosenthal developed. By the time I got to analyzing my data, I got to a point of feeling like coalitions should be conceptualized more so as networks rather than organizations. That's actually very helpful because it leads me to my next question about what you learned along the way. I suppose we should start, though, at the beginning when you began this work. What did you hope to learn? And then we can move into what actually you did learn. Sure. Sounds great. Uh, So what I was hoping to understand more about was how coalition leaders define coalition success and the many dimensions that people use to understand coalition success. I also wanted to know what internal and environmental factors predicted failure for coalitions or also could be conceived as dissolution rather than failure. I also wanted to know what internal features predicted success. I wanted to know what environmental features predicted success. I also wanted to know how well social capital theory helped explain coalition success because I had a sense that there was that using a social capital lens might help us understand a little bit better and I wanted to examine that a little bit further. I also wanted to know how the specific political, fiscal, and social conditions that were present during the time of these coalitions influenced the development and the lifespan of the coalitions under study. And then lastly, I should say, as I already stated, you know, understanding how these perceptions had changed over time. Could you say just a little bit more about, because you did mention this at the beginning, but a little bit more about who actually you surveyed? My goal was to have two sort of sub-samples that I would be interviewing, the first being the group of original participants from the first study, so that my goal was to have 40 
of the original participants. Those original participants were self-identified leaders of the coalitions that they were involved in, and that can mean sort of many different things depending on the structure of each coalition, and that's something that I did have them identify further. So it, it could be an executive director. It could be somebody who everybody sort of agrees is the leader with no formal title. It could be a president of a board. It could be a leader of an organization who sent that person to be a representative to the coalition. So it, the title of that person can take sort of different forms, but they were all sort of self-identified leaders. Many of them were actual founders of the coalitions under study. So my first group of people that I wanted to interview were those 40 original participants. I was able to locate and interview 23 out of the original 40. And then I had another smaller subgroup of seven participants, leaders from coalitions that are still intact from the original point of study for a total of 30. Could you say a little bit about what kind of coalitions? Were these coalitions of human service providers or uh, you mentioned environmental factors, so I'm wondering if you had any environmental groups or... Sure. As I said, in the original study, they identified or they asked for self-identified leaders from social change coalition. So that's obviously a very broad term. And it does encompass, yes, some environmental groups. There were coalitions to end homelessness, to end poverty, coalitions to address domestic violence, coalitions that developed to address sort of a specific issue in a community, whether it be the development of a new structure or the destruction of an old structure. So for some coalitions, it was very sort of time and issue specific, but the issues that they addressed really were across the board in terms of sort of things that are just generally concerning to the members of that community. And given the broad range then of those coalitions and participants, wonderful connection then to uh, social capital theory. Was that a theoretical framework? And if so, could you say a little bit more about it? Yes, I sort of utilize a few theoretical foundations to analyze the work. And one, like I said, was using kind of organizational theory and literature, which again, that sort of morphed into networks and network theory. But then yes, that ultimately sort of compelled me to look at things from a social capital perspective. And for people who you know are interested in social capital, again, it's a very sort of amorphous concept uh, that people have trouble kind of pinning down and identifying. And I myself went through different iterations of understanding of what social capital is. How do I even define this term or what this means? And I ended up relying on a definition from Mackie and Dilly, who essentially said that social capital is a set of characteristics of a human organization that encompasses the relations between individuals or groups, the standards of social behavior, the mutual reciprocity, and how these things make action possible because they're based on a collaborative process. So I thought that that definition was particularly useful for me, given that I was studying groups of people and understanding how and why collaboration in the informal sense works. 
they also hold apart three different aspects of social capital, the structural, relational, and cognitive dimensions of social capital. So I was really able to look at things and look at the different items that I was analyzing along these lines. So to say things more in detail, the structural aspect of social capital is the structure of the coalition itself and the greater network that it's involved in, along with the presence of the relationships within that network, including the strength and the stability of those relationships. There's also the relational dimension, which is trying to understand how relationships are influenced by respect, trust, acceptance, shared norms, obligations, commitment, participation, and diversity. And then lastly is the cognitive dimension, which looks at the shared values, the collective shared interest, and I think most importantly, the expectation of mutual reciprocity. So I felt that by breaking things down and borrowing from this definition, this understanding of social capital, that it gave me the most clear sense of how the mechanisms of social capital operate in a coalition in particular. I mean, I can really see that, particularly with the uh, uh, flexibility that's needed in thinking and behaving with people from other organizations in terms of that mutual reciprocity. So within that context, then, what were some of your most interesting findings? I kind of broke things down into a few different categories of, of findings, if you will. So the first was understanding how, how these leaders define success. One of the things that came out of the original study that was particularly interesting was that regardless of the status of the coalition itself, every single participant categorized their coalition as being at least somewhat successful. So nobody said that their coalition was a failure, regardless of whether or not they actually achieved their goals or remained intact. And that is why we started to move toward understanding not so much failure, but dissolution or dormancy, because it may have been the case that that it wasn't intended to last long, it wasn't intended to stay intact, or that there were things that were successful, even in instances where the coalitions didn't achieve their primary goals. One of the most interesting findings was seeing how that understanding, that multidimensional definition of success, if that had changed or not over time and how people were perceiving things now. So one thing that I found was, like the original study, although success is defined multidimensionally, achieving goals still remains the strongest predictor for those leaders. And longevity remained the least important, meaning that just because a coalition didn't last didn't mean that it was not successful. So that was one piece that kind of remained pretty pretty stable over time, understanding success from a number of perspectives, but ultimately that achieving goals is of primary importance and longevity is of the least importance. The other sort of dimensions or possible definitions that had been identified in the original study were gaining recognition from the target, raising consciousness in the community, creating lasting networks, having coalition members acquire new skills. So those still were rated relatively high, but the, the most important one, the most significant one was, in fact, achieving goals. How did those political, economic, and environmental factors play out? What I found was that in particular to my study in the coalitions that geographically, you know, were based in New York City, that the relationships between the coalitions and 
the city and state level officials were of the utmost importance. These were coalitions that were formed for the most part in the 80s. And so they were highly, highly impacted by the New York City fiscal crisis of the 70s. And that for many, in particular, the ones that were not able to achieve their goals and did feel that there were kind of political factors that influenced that, that the relationships with the mayors at the time, in particular, Mayor Koch and Mayor Giuliani, that those relationships did play a large part in the challenges toward achieving their goals. Many participants also talked about the relationship with state-level officials, assemblymen in particular, and other legislators, that ultimately that those relationships did affect and did, did matter in terms of whether or not the coalition was able to sort of persist and address the issues that they wanted to tackle. I also found that the federal political climate did have an effect on the coalitions, according to these leaders, but the effect was in the sense of how it impacted the social climate. So the things that were going on on a federal level, and I'm sure this could be its own study in itself, how those federal issues were sort of filtered through the media and presented to the general public created particular social climates in New York City, which made things either particularly difficult or more conducive to the work that the that coalition was doing, depending on how things were being sort of vocalized and perceived in the general community. So if you think about issues like HIV AIDS and the AIDS crisis that was going on, you know, how people were talking about that as an issue did affect the ability of the coalition because there was absolutely, you know, in this case, stigma involved and uh, sort of targeting involved if you look at that particular issue. So the all of the levels of sort of the political, fiscal, and social climate did matter, but it was those more localized relationships that seemed to have the most direct effect. What are the implications of your work to inform how current coalitions are operating today? I think that's a really important question. Some of the other findings that came out of my work was around the degree of structure or formality in the coalition itself. One of the things that I found was that the more structured the coalition is, the more chances they have or the more opportunities they have to achieve their goals and to persist over time if that is their desire, including, you know, institutionalizing, as I called it, the relationship between a particular organization and the coalition itself. What I mean by that is that oftentimes when organizations are participating in coalitions, it's usually not something that is sort of written into that organization's work or a particular person's job description. So it seems like what happens often is there's somebody at a particular organization who says, hey, you know, did you hear about this coalition? I think this is something that our organization should be involved in and goes and participates in it and probably does a great job. But when that person leaves, then that relationship between that organization and that coalition is no longer there. And so one of the things that I found is that those that institutionalize that relationship, when organizations institutionalize their relationship to a coalition and almost codified it, that it increased the chances of achieving goals. And there's a lot of reasons for that, including sort of the commitment level that might be demonstrated if it is more of a formal expectation. 
but also then that the res that other resources get diverted toward that coalition that may not be there. I heard a lot of people say that they that money didn't matter, that their coalition didn't have any money and they still did well. But overall, money did matter and coalitions do need funding to persist over time if that is their goal. Another sort of interesting thing that I found was around diversity in that people for the most sense seem to value diversity, but had a really difficult time making that happen. And along those same lines, people seem to value a egalitarian and consensus-based decision-making process, but overall that were able to persist over time had a more top-down structure and had less sort of community participation. So I think that's a really sort of interesting finding that probably needs a lot of further examination. But I think that as we think about the current state of things and, and what it means, we have to recognize that for social change issues that federal resources are less and less as it is right now as time goes on, and that those resources that might be allocated for social change coalitions probably aren't going to be as available. Simultaneously, there are increased mandates for coalition and collaboration in general from the federal level and also from the state level. So as we look at these different social issues, and we see this in particular with many health-related issues, that that funders, in particular public funders, but also private funders, are mandating that people collaborate across disciplines and across fields. And I think that's, a, that's actually fantastic, but a lot of times the resources and the funding are contingent upon that collaboration. So I think that, that we have to recognize now that some of the resources and the, those sort of tangible resources are not gonna be there. And I think that it's important to find other ways to formalize these coalitions and formalize these relationships outside of money, essentially, and finding opportunities for people from organizations to participate in coalitions in a way that isn't just sort of ad hoc. You know, it isn't like, oh, this is something that I do because I'm I like it and my boss said it's okay. That it's actually written into job descriptions and it's on my spare time. So I want to circle back to, to that point because I think that you mentioned early on some of your work is based on organizational theory, right? And connect that to the innovative ways that coalitions do their work. Could you say a little bit more then about your future work and, and where you see this going? I think in general, a lot of the success of sort of future coalitions and collaborations is dependent on its leadership. That was another kind of important finding that leaders really, leaders matter, obviously, but also that they act sort of as linchpins for all of these other different predictors that influence the success of a coalition. And ultimately that effective leaders need to be both transactional and transformative. So they need to be keeping an eye on sort of the day-to-day activity and task-based stuff, but also be driving coalitions toward their vision, toward their mission, and transforming their coalitions as time goes on to, to adapt, you know, to adapt to the environment, to adapt to changing needs of the community. So I think that, you know, at this point in time, we really need to pay attention to leaders, and leaders need to know that if they are embarking on, say, 
forming a coalition or leading a coalition, that they certainly have the dedicated time to do that. And that in these instances where, you know, they want to involve people from organizations who don't have the time, who don't have the resources, that they are creating opportunities for flexible but meaningful participation. Because people need to feel like they're making a difference. And that's kind of part of the social capital aspect as well, that people who are involved need to feel like their presence matters, that they're making a difference, that they have a role and responsibility and, and a commitment to the coalition. And I think it's ultimately up to the coalition leaders to facilitate these relationships where people can exercise their power in coalitions and enact their power in coalitions, but in ways that work for them, in ways that are flexible, in ways that serve their organization's needs in addition to the coalition's needs. People need to feel like they and their organization are getting something out of it. And I think that a lot of that lies in the hands of the leaders. Our altruistic aims only go so far when the day-to-day operations have to continue on. So given that, what's next for you? I am currently the program director, like I said, from the Arthur Project, which is a new nonprofit in New York City. And I actually took a step away from teaching to be involved in this. And the reason I, I was sort of willing to do that and excited about doing that is the Arthur Project is providing intensive mentoring services to, quote, at-risk middle school students right now in the South Bronx, which is actually close to home for me. So that's one reason that I was excited about it. But really, the other reason is that the goal of our mentoring program and the unique structure and relationship of our program is that we want to improve the social and economic mobility of the young people that we are going to be serving. And we're going to do that by helping our young people create personal and professional networks through which they can get real experiences, both sort of life experiences, cultural experience, but also job-based and academic-based experiences that are ultimately going to improve their chances of having those opportunities later in life. Even though they are middle school students now, we really want to help them create a professional network that they can tap into throughout their whole life, through high school, college, or, or career and beyond. So there absolutely is an aspect of this social capital and network piece that I feel really excited about and that I'm hoping to see kind of play out in real life as we roll out our program. So that's very exciting to see how that goes. Thank you very, very much for sharing your story with us. Thank you. Best of luck with that research. It's very exciting. Thanks. You've been listening to Dr. Jessica Greenewald discuss her research on predicting coalition success and failure on In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our online and on-the-ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.